Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. And today's episode is Looking Through a Glass Darkly. When I think of the phrase, looking through a glass darkly, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the Swedish film directed by Ingrid Bergman from 1962. (laughs) If you haven't seen it and you're into foreign films, it's an interesting watch with some excellent cinematography. But let's jump into this one. Many of us that have read and studied some of the apologetics that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints puts out, have heard this phrase over and over. Prophets see through a glass darkly. You'll see this phrase pop up in BYU devotionals. You'll see it pop up in books such as um, The Crucible of Doubt by Terrell and Fiona Givens. You'll see it pop up in BYU scholarship. You You have a full article by Daniel C. Peterson and John Gee called through a glass darkly this is a a subject that they like to touch on as a way to normalize the fact that prophets get it wrong it is a catch-all phrase they say it almost as if just this one phrase will give them a pass on doing all manner of horrible things and today i want to look at the source for this phrase and understand exactly what it means and then analyze if it should be part of the belief system or not. It's something that they have to build into the theology based on some of the mistakes of the past. Because if they don't build into the belief system a way to forgive the mistakes of past prophets, then then it causes real dissonance. This phrase is a way to perhaps gaslight yourself or, emo- or spiritually bypass yourself when you experience dissonance when a prophet gets something wrong. The source for this is from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And it says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then shall I know, even as also I am known. This is the chapter that's that's talking about spiritual gifts. Talks about love, talks about speaking in tongues, love never fails. Lots of things in that that regard. Sometimes 1 Corinthians 13 is referred to as the hymn of love because it's a large section of of this chapter is referring to love. One of the ironies of this is, is the through a glass darkly is a little bit misleading when we, when we hear it used in context in the Mormon church. It's almost as if they're looking through a magnifying glass or a, or a telescope or binoculars, like looking through darkened binoculars. What Paul is actually referring to is a mirror, looking through a mirror darkly. And specifically, the word 
um, that's translated as darkly is not actual actually dark. The Greek word that they use to translate to to darkly is probably better translated to enigma. And so you get a little bit more subtlety in Paul's writing. He says, this is looking through a mirror, you know, as an enigma. In the disciples' literal New Testament, this is a translation that does its best to do literal translations from the Greek to English. It says, for now we are seeing through a mirror in an enigma, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also was fully known. In the, in the King James translation, which, by the way, is one of the worst, in the King James translation of this, you miss out on a little bit of the subtlety that Paul's going for and a bit of the meaning. Paul's actually, he's talking about his own flaws and his own inability to see the world fully, and he recognizes that. But he's saying, he's saying that he'll be able to see it more fully in the end times. In order to understand this just a little bit better, let's read a, f- a few of the verses prior to this one for a little context. And this context doesn't have good implications for the church, unfortunately. So the first half of this chapter, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, basically making the case that without love, none of these gifts of the Spirit have much value. When he transitions from there, he says, in verse 8 it says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And then we have verse 12 where it says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And then it ends with with verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Interestingly, in the King James Version, the through a glass darkly, isn't actually there. You have to go to different translations to get that particular phraseology. So back to the this this whole series of verses when read together, it says that in verse 10 in particular says when completeness comes what is in part disappears. The rhetoric in the church is that the restoration has happened. And that we have a fullness of the gospel within the Mormon church. According to Paul here, when fullness comes, we don't have part knowledge and part truths. We have the fullness. And so there's, according to Paul, if there's a restoration, you should not be looking through a glass darkly. You should have the fullness. And this brings a major implication to the Mormon church. If they acknowledge that their prophets see through a glass darkly, then they do not have the fullness of the gospel. That doesn't mean they can't have some of the truth. That doesn't mean that that members can't believe. I think 
it's important to recognize these contradictions. For those that choose to believe in the church, even with many of the contradictions and the problems that we've been discussing, particularly in reference to the fact that prophets see through a glass darkly, according to modern apologists, is important for members of the faith to recognize that. And this, this brings us to a series of questions. I want to, for the next part of this episode, I want to understand some of these implications of them seeing through a glass darkly. A few episodes ago, I talked about Mormon tinted glasses and Immanuel Kant and how none of us see the world objectively. And in Cafeteria Mormonism, we built on that a little bit, and we talked about some of the nuance of even people of the same faith will see the world in a slightly unique way, based on the things that they have or haven't learned, the things that they have or don't have a testimony of. Each person, even within the same group, has a unique experience of the world around them. When we use language like this with the prophets, it is deeply problematic. Well, I think this is an important thing to, to keep in mind when we're talking about Paul and when we're talking about the prophets. The rhetoric in the church is such that there is no room for error. They do not apologize for mistakes. They do not reconcile. It's deeply problematic because the rhetoric in the church is such that these men are infallible. A progressive Mormon or a nuanced Mormon might debate me on that and might say something along the lines of, we know that they make mistakes. We know that they're not perfect. But in the Mormon church, they are deified and they are worshipped alongside Jesus. There is little distinction between the way we treat the prophet Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ. In fact, there's rhetoric around holding Joseph Smith in almost as high a regard as Jesus. So while we have these phrases that, that might give them a pass when they get things wrong, they don't actually work with the theology because in practice, that is not how it is treated over the pulpit or in the scriptures. So the question I ask, we've established this in previous episodes, prophets contradict each other, they retract the statements of previous prophets. They change the doctrines. It's so much so in a way that it's, it's almost a U-turn sometimes. But as an example, the use of the, the word Mormon being a victory for Satan, but it wasn't a victory for Satan for nearly 200 years before that. And I could, I could list many other things, but they would get us off topic. If these men see through a mirror darkly, dimly, or as an enigma, what it's trying to say is that they, they're just guessing. The problem with this concept, to illustrate this, I'm going to make an allowance. Let's say that God talks to these men and they do receive inspiration. Okay, let's just, let's, let's allow that concession so that we can think about this. Let's say God speaks to them, but he speaks to them through a glass darkly and they misunderstand him. And then go and turn around and teach the church something that God never said or intended. How is that useful to the world? What purpose 
why call a prophet if he's not going to understand what God is trying to say? Now, I, I don't believe these people speak to God. I don't think they have any more access to deity than anyone else does. But if they did, and this is the way that God set it up, then it's kind of an asinine system. But perhaps for a believer, this system is set up for them to be able to think critically and decide for themselves where the prophets and apostles are getting it wrong. Perhaps the system is set up this way to empower the members to make the decisions for themselves. That's enough of my apologist hat. I'm going to take that off for a minute. One of the common arguments that you'll hear about the seeing through a a glass darkly is is that even a calculator that's wrong some of the time still works and is still useful. And that, that, that is just illogical. If you know you have a tool that was built to do something, but it only does that thing sometimes, if you have this calculator that's right 99% of the time, we'll use their example. I might disagree on the exact percentage of times that they're wrong, But let's say it's wrong. To be fair, let's just say half of the time you have a calculator that works 50% of the time. What would you do to make sure if you're doing, you're doing math, you're calculating, you're trying to figure something out, you plug it into this calculator that's clearly broken. If it's not getting the right answer, it's broken. You're using a broken calculator. You punch in the equation and it gives you an answer. What should you do? you're not confident that it's giving you the right answer, what would you do? You do the math. You're not sure if it comes out right. You could plug it into the calculator again, but how can you trust it? If you plug it into the calculator again and it gives you a different answer, which answer are we supposed to trust? This dilemma is the same dilemma that I presented a a number of episodes ago when we were talking about Article of Faith number 9 and harmonizing the prophets. We get different answers from different prophets of the church. So what are we supposed to do with this calculator that is completely busted? We can ask over and over again and get a different answer every time we plug it into the calculator. But what would a more reasonable solution be? If your calculator is not giving you the right answer, you could buy a new calculator. Maybe a a calculator to to double check that the original one is, is functioning properly. The broken calculator analogy that they use is just, it's, it's silly because the obvious answer to this problem of a calculator that's only right sometimes is you just go and get a new calculator that's right all of the time. But that has some uncomfortable implications for a believer. One of the problems with this analogy is that it ignores the real harm the church does to people. If this calculator, if these prophets are getting it wrong, this improper calculation is harming the lives of the members of the church. It's not just mistaking a math problem. It's causing people real harm in their lives. It teaches them that they're unnatural or that there's something inherently evil about them. For me, my response to leave the church and to speak out openly against it to those around me and now in this podcast. But what if someone believes in the church and still clings to their testimony in some of the truth claims? 
Maybe this person doesn't hold every truth claim, but but wants to believe the church does good. And I think the really important question that needs to be asked is, can someone be an ally and support the Mormon church? How do we know when the prophets have it wrong? And what can we do about it? The way the system, the way the church is set up is there's literally nothing you can do. You're not allowed to speak criticisms against the leaders of the church. Or let's say, for example, if you feel that the LGBTQ exclusion policies are wrong, there's nothing you can do about that and be a member of the church. You cannot support the leadership and also be an ally. So if they have it wrong, if this calculator is broken, what could a member of the church do when they see through the mistakes of the leaders? There is nothing built into the system that allows for them to criticize and recommend changes. So this analogy of the broken calculator doesn't work. There's no established way for the membership to corroborate if the answer the calculator gives is right or wrong. And on top of that, if a member somehow does figure out that, that the calculator is broken, they can't talk to their bishop about it. They can't talk to their stake president about it. Sometimes they can't even talk to their family and loved ones about it. This concept of looking through a glass darkly and trying to brush off the fact that they get it so very wrong is harmful because it normalizes, it normalizes the fact that they make mistakes without offering a solution for when they do make mistakes. How much better would the analogy be if the apologists said, yes, they see through a glass darkly, yes, it's a broken calculator, and when the calculator gets it wrong, this is what you should do. But that's not what they say. They say, you have to wait for the calculator to eventually get it right. You have to wait for the calculator to rerun its, rerun the equation and hope that it gets the right answer the next time. But as we see with many, many instances, that takes generations. And that's too slow for a lot of people. And that's why people end up leaving the church. Even people that still believe in God. They leave the church because they see that there's an incompatibility between the concept of a loving deity and many of the teachings within the church. Here's an interesting contradiction. As people, when we hurt someone's feelings, when we say something that's offensive, what are we taught to do about it? Well, we can all remember the lessons that we were taught as kids. Many of us know what we teach our own children when they make mistakes. We tell them to say sorry. We tell them to make right whatever it was that they did wrong. But that's not the situation with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have the, the, the oft-used quote by Elder Oaks that, that says, Church leaders do not apologize. And then when confronted about it, he said that, that the word apology isn't in the scriptures. The thing that frustrates me about conversations like that is, is they never address the accusation. What if we acted like the church? What type of people would we be? When we make mistakes, if, we, if I hurt someone's feelings and they said, you need to say sorry to me. And if I turned around and said, the word apology isn't in the scriptures and I never apologized for it. If I acted that way, it would show that I am not a nice person. But it would also show 
that I missed the whole message of Jesus Christ. And yes, I know that that is a big claim and a huge accusation against Elder Oaks, but if he reads the words of Christ and thinks that he should not apologize when he's done something wrong, then he missed the whole message. Love your neighbor does not mean protect yourself at your neighbor's expense. The hard part about looking through a glass darkly and trying to justify these mistakes is that it ignores the fact that they are setting an example and a precedent of harm and deceit. And if that's the system that they want to to propagate, then it is not of Jesus Christ. I recognize that I've used some harsh words in this episode. I want to make it clear that I don't think that they can't become a better organization. I know that many of the members are excellent, good people. But the example they're given by the leadership is not healthy. And when we justify their mistakes and ignore them and teach that we cannot criticize or call out when they get something wrong, it creates an unhealthy imbalance of power. One of the things that I try and teach my children is that when they disagree with me, they can talk to me about it. For example, in a recent car trip that we had with our kids, I had idly said to my children, you can only bring one stuffed animal and one book. I set a limit because I just didn't want them to bring a lot of different things. I didn't want a lot of clutter in the car as we were driving. And away I went. I started packing. We're getting ready. My daughter came up to me and she was, she was frustrated. And she said, well, I want two books. And <laughs> perhaps I was a bit stubborn at first, but I told her, no, no. I said just one book and one stuffed animal. And she questioned me on the reasoning for it. And one of the things that I've always told my children is if they, if they can come at me with a good reason why we should change whatever the rule is, then we can change it. They do have to convince me of it. And it, and it can't be something silly. But for this one, she, she didn't understand why she couldn't have more books, especially if she put them in a bag and, and took good care of them. And so... I changed the rule. I said, fine, take the books that you want, but let's put a different limit on it. Why don't we come to an agreement on a, on a good number that you'll be able to manage that won't make a mess? And we settled on a number and I changed the rule and we went on our trip. Why can't a system such as that be implemented in a church, especially when many of the doctrines are very harmful to the members? How much healthier of an organization would it be if people could say, this leader hurt me or this leader taught this thing that was wrong and they would have a channel of discourse where it could be investigated and looked into rather than what usually happens is even for very harmful things that, that occur behind closed doors. They normally just get swept under the rug and ignored. I know what I'm recommending isn't how the church interacts with its members. And I know that this sort of a change may never happen. The point that I want to illustrate is that when we justify the actions of the leaders and allow a space for them to be wrong, 
without a channel for people to recognize when they're wrong and correct them, we may as well just not recognize that they get anything wrong because it does no good. When a member of the church recognizes that a prophet has made a mistake and they cannot address it, they will go elsewhere. And this is the very problem the church is facing. Many people are learning the harsh reality that the actual history of the church does not line up with what they were taught, and there's nowhere for them to go with this information. So they leave. Other people find out that the church has harmed many minority groups and the LGBTQ plus community, and they don't know what to do with that information. They can't talk to anyone in the church about it, so they leave. The church is facing an existential crisis right now, and perhaps the simple solution to it all would be to allow for a channel where people can make complaints and suggest changes. I don't care if the prophets want to frame these changes as revelation. That's fine. But the current model does not work. And justifying it by, by using phrases such as looking through a glass darkly or broken calculators do not help. I apologize if, if the tone of this episode was a bit harsher than many of my previous ones, but bad apologetics need to be called out for what they are. There are broken parts of the system that need to be fixed if it wants to be a healthy organization. Many of us that went through seminary in the 90s and early 2000s, we saw these really cheesy seminary videos. They were so bad laughably bad that sometimes I still think about them and just laugh at how corny they were. <laughs> One of the lines that has stuck with me just in my head for no apparent reason at all is the, is the seminary video called The Date, and it's about a young man asking a girl on a date. I had nothing to do with the church, but uh, I have never forgotten that video, and I still remember a lot of the lines because they're just so corny. There was a video that I watched in seminary called Watchmen on the Tower. So in this video, they talk about Ezekiel 33, one through seven. And Ezekiel describes the role of a prophet as being someone who sees where the rest of the people cannot see. The church likes to pretend that the organization they have today is the same that was in every dispensation dispensation throughout time, and that that's not the case. There wasn't a prophet leading the church. Most of these most of these books were written too late and and pseudepigraphically, and then later attributed to other people. It's it's silly to to project our modern hierarchy of a church onto the ancient world when they did not have this same organization. Anyway, so this video, Watchmen on the Tower, it's real short. It's like five minutes long. It starts off showing a tower and some men watching their flocks, and these bandits come up, and the bandits are around the ridge, but the man on the tower can see him coming. So he's able to warn the rest of the men, and they're able to fend off the thieves from stealing their flock. After that point, you have some you have some of the words with, of Gordon B. Hinckley talking about the role of a prophet, and this role specifically as the as the watchman on the tower. The way this is presented, the watchman on the tower isn't looking through a glass darkly. 
The watchman on the tower can clearly see the danger coming, and he warns the people. And now that brings an important contradiction and an important question. When was the last time any prophet, seer, or revelator of the church warned any of the members about any sort of real danger? When you compare the modern prophets to the prophets in the scriptures, they fall short because they have very little to say that's new. They have very little to say that's groundbreaking. They do not see, they do not prophesy, and they do not reveal. And when we analyze this, this idea of them looking through a glass darkly, this is just a way for apologists to lower the expectations put on prophets, seers, and revelators. But that lowered expectation is not the reality of what is preached. I ask this question again. What is the point of a prophet if they get something wrong? Even just one thing. If you have, if you have a calculation, let's say it's someone is wrong 50% of the time. That doesn't mean every other thing they say is going to be true. It means that there's a 50% chance that everything they say is going to be wrong. That percentage doesn't, doesn't change. It's 50% every single time. And although improbable, they could get it wrong every single time because they have a 50% chance of getting it wrong. So as I said before, if the calculator is broken, perhaps we need a new calculator. I think the, the hard part about this is that there are good people in the church being led astray because of very, very bad advice. And for many people, the culture and their friends in the church are what hold them to it, more so than the teachings, more so than the prophets. Many of the other issues I present, outside of the LGBTQ+, Many of the other issues I present, there, there is a faithful way to look at it. There's a way to reconcile it and have a positive view of it. But there are others that, that you can't. It is morally wrong to discriminate. It is morally wrong to discriminate against someone based on race, based on gender, based on gender identity, based on sexual orientation. It's immoral to do it. And... If someone believes in God and believes that God is a moral being, discrimination is not what God would do. I want to briefly go back. We'll go into the mindset of the givens, of the apologists, and say, this broken calculator is the calculator we have. It's the calculator God gave us, and we're supposed to use it even if it's broken, even if it only gets the answer right half of the time. Now, the number the givens use and the apologists use is 99% of the time, but it's irrelevant. Let's concede, let's say, yes, this is how God set it up, this is how it's supposed to be, and they see through a glass darkly. What should the member of the church do when they recognize that the prophet has gotten it wrong? In this situation, in this framework that the apologist has created, where the, the prophets get it wrong, what should the members of the church do when they recognize that the prophet is wrong? Should they point it out? They can't do that. They'll get in trouble. Should they protest? No. They'll lose their membership in the church. Should they talk to their friends about it? No. You're not supposed to rehearse your doubts with other doubters. So what good does it do if we recognize that they get things wrong? 
but we're not allowed to talk about it. We just pretend like they don't get things wrong? Is that the paradigm that we're, that we're supposed to live in? Ignoring the problems when we recognize them and they don't? And what does that say about us? As the members that can see through the problems, what does that say about the individual that believes but sees through the problems? Do they have more access to deity than the prophets do? The problem with this broken calculator and looking through a glass darkly framework is there's nothing that can be done about it. We're just supposed to sit idly by when they get things wrong. And when these wrong teachings hurt people, there's nowhere for a believing member to criticize and correct a leader. It's not built into the theology. So until that changes, this concept of looking through a glass darkly is irrelevant. Believe it or don't believe it. It does not help. Even though I don't believe in the God presented to me by any religion out there, I cannot conceive of a good God who would create a system where the leader of the church would get it so wrong. That's not, that's not a thing I can grapple with. Bad apologetics hurt the church just as much as bad teachings. When you say a thing like looking through a glass darkly and you, and you excuse a prophet from making a mistake, you create a scenario where they're blameless, even when their teachings have hurt people. Thank you for listening today. I ranted a little bit more than I intended to. And I perhaps showed my opinion a little bit stronger than I normally do. I didn't intend to go into some of the subjects that we discussed today. I, I typically try and stay a little bit more neutral, and I apologize to some of my listeners that are used to that. I want to create a space for a believer, but I also want to make it clear that I'm going to push back against things that need to change. And the church's stance on the LGBTQ community needs to change. If you enjoy what I've been saying and you enjoy the podcast, please go to your podcast streaming site and like it, leave a comment, tell your friends about it. I really appreciate you listening. If there's a subject that you want me to discuss down the road, something that you, you want me to ruminate on or give my opinion on, please reach out to the, to the Rami Umptum Ruminations Facebook page and we can chat there. And as always, I hope you have an excellent day.